0: I'm glad my sermon was in my cargo shorts. Sounds terrible. Watch actually pull this sermon out of my cargo shorts. Forget it. <sighs> hey, you know today's been a tough day for a bunch of my friends. A really hard day. I don't know that I've seen this many phone calls and and, and this much. Travail in such a short period of time uh, in, in many, many, many months. So, if you guys wouldn't mind, let's pray for these folks um, and people that I'm not even aware of. Maybe you know somebody that you can pray for who's having a hard time. Lord God, um, yeah, so much pain, so much suffering, so much going wrong in life. And I want to lift up a Dave and his wife, Becky, and their three kids, and I want to lift up uh, Christiana, and I want to lift up Jackie's sister, and so many other folks who are struggling. Uh, Jesus, would you please do something special for them, help them? Uh, At the very least, bless them with a sense of your presence so that they can keep going. In your name we pray. Amen. So I'm not usually big into illustrations from history, but uh, there was a story that I read this week about St. Telemachus. Telemachus was a monk. He was an ascetic, which means he was the kind of a monk who would go and hide out in the desert, pray to become one with the Lord. And the story goes that he did this for quite some time. And then after quite a while of being a hermit monk, he felt the Lord calling him to leave the desert and to go interact with people that he could do more good if he left, he was ready. So he left the deserts in the east, Asia Minor area, and he went to Rome, the story goes. This is about 404 A.D. The Roman Empire at that time uh, was newly Christianized, so they were still carrying a lot of the baggage from, you know, the last thousand years. And Telemachus came into the city, and there was a triumphal entry for one of the generals, Flavius. I cannot remember his last name. Anyway, he had just returned from a successful military campaign. They had the triumphal procession with all the goods they had taken, the prisoners, things like that. And then it was going to be a grand celebration with gladiators in the stadium. And the gladiators would be fighting against the captives that he had just brought back. And so Telemachus went to the stadium and was appalled by what he saw. This newly Christian empire, maybe Christian in name only, was satisfying its bloodlust by watching men kill each other for sport. Men for whom Christ died, Telemachus thought, And he could not take it, and so he rushed out of the stands down into the stadium to try and stop two gladiators from killing one another. And the story goes that the fighting stopped for an instant because here was this aged monk in ragtag clothes standing between a couple gladiators. And then the booze from the crowd began. And the story goes that he was stoned to death by the crowd for taking away their entertainment. The emperor Honorarius, I believe his name was, or Honorius, was so distressed by what happened that it was shortly thereafter that the gladiatorial games ended in ancient Rome. There's a story also I read about four World War II Navy, no, actually Army chaplains. There was a U.S. Army transport ship, the USAT Dorchester. It was part of a naval convoy it was taking troops from uh, Greenland to Newfoundland, icy waters, late at night. And a German U-boat spotted the transport and fired torpedoes that not only began to sink the Dorchester, but it blacked out all of the electronics so they couldn't sound the alarm that the ship had been hit to go to the lifeboats, the ship began to list so badly that one side of the ship, the lifeboats, were unavailable to the sailors. They were passing out life vests. The chaplains actually took part in, in organizing the frenzied soldiers, all of them lieutenants all of them giving up their life jackets for enlisted men. And there is even an eyewitness account of a man watching the ship sink. Grady Clark wrote this, As I swam away from the ship, I looked back. The flares had lighted everything. The bow came up high and she slid under. The last thing I saw, the four chaplains were up there praying for the safety of the men. They had done everything they could. I did not see them again. They themselves did not have a chance without their life jackets. The waters were 34 degrees Fahrenheit. The air temperature was 36 degrees Fahrenheit. Even some of the men who escaped died of hypothermia. But hundreds lived. And you wonder, what possesses people to do things like this? We'd all like to think we have the gumption to stop a gladiator fight or to offer our life jacket to someone who didn't know the Lord. But what pushes people in these crisis situations to do things like this it doesn't just happen instantaneously right there. I mean, it's a lifetime building up to that kind of a decision, isn't it? For us as Christians, it starts with the example set by our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. We have reached the place in the Gospel of Mark where we are now at the pinnacle of the Gospel. We've been building up to these stories that we've been telling last week, this week, and next week for eight chapters. Everything from here is downhill toward the cross. But this is like the climax of the book, you know. Last week we heard that Peter recognized Jesus as the Messiah. It took him a while, right? Some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some say you're this prophet, you're that prophet. Peter blurts out, but you're the Messiah. Takes him a while, but he finally gets it. Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah. Peter's got the who right. He's got who this is about correct. What Peter's not going to get is the how. This is going to be the difficult thing. As Jesus begins talking about self-sacrifice the kind of sacrifice that will characterize Peter way down the road the kind of sacrifice that has characterized christians for thousands of years like the four chaplains like saint telemachus so let's go and let's take a look at the end of mark chapter 8 starting in verse 31 it should be right there up on the wall if you want to watch while i read I'll stop and start as we go. Jesus is predicting his death here. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, meaning himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. He's not talking in parables anymore. He's talking to them directly. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest me. I'm going to be tortured. I will be killed. Now, this is not what you think of when you think of the Messiah, if you're Peter. You don't think about the Messiah doing it this way. This is not the way that the conquering king is supposed to enter the world. Once again, we've been over this before, but for those of you who are new, the Jews were looking for a deliverer, somebody who was going to come and make everything right. It's kind of like the return of King Arthur if you're British, you know? And they pictured him bringing the whole synagogue, the whole faith thing, back into correct order. They weren't stupid. They knew there were people in the synagogue who were in there just for the money, who were not doing the religion for the right reasons. They understood about the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all those people who were trying to make it tough for folks to ever enter into the kingdom of God. They understood that. They understood about hypocrisy. They got it. And they saw it all around them. And so there were plenty of people who were longing for the Jewish church to finally be what it was supposed to be. In addition to that, they had political hopes because they knew that King David's heir, the one who was going to come and rule, a son of David would come and rule over them and Jerusalem would become the capital city of the world. Everything would be put to rights. The nations would come to get wisdom from the Jewish people. They would come from afar. There would be no more war, no more fighting because the king would finally set himself up with Israel as the hub of a worldwide kingdom. The Romans will be kicked out. The Gentiles will be kicked out of the temple. It will be great. You see? And now Jesus says almost exactly the opposite. That instead, the Messiah is going to come, be arrested, be tortured, and be killed. So Peter took him aside, it says in verse 32, and began to rebuke him. Rebuke him. He's rebuking Jesus. This is the same word that Jesus uh, rebukes demons with. Same word that Mark uses when he's talking about Jesus rebuking demons. Peter rebukes Jesus. Basically saying what? This isn't going to happen to you. This is not part of my plan. This is not how you do it, Jesus. Just ask me. I know how the Messiah is supposed to work. Talk to me. And we like, I mean, I laugh at Peter, right? Until I look up myself. Because I do this to Jesus all the time. Jesus. You see the situation over here? It's totally wrong, Jesus. This should not be. It's an unjust situation. You should change that. If you were the Messiah, like I think you should be the Messiah, you would change that. Or you see this person over here, Jesus? This person over here needs healing. Healing. And I'll tell you, Jesus, if I were you, I would heal that person. And then Jesus doesn't. Or, or, Jesus, I'm so broke. In fact, I have negative money, Jesus. I, I am in debt. And if you would only bless me with some cash, a new job, a gift from a dying uncle that I never knew about, the lottery, I don't care. I would give money to your church. Lots of money to your church. I give lots of money to the stuff I want to do too, but still. Lord, your servants would be blessed. Your church would be in better shape. They could pay off all this stuff. at scum of the earth that they currently can't even think about doing. And Jesus says no. So far, I have not won the lottery. Helps if you play. But I figure Jesus can wake me up in the middle of the night and give me the numbers. You know? So, maybe Peter isn't as far off as I like to think he is. Verse 33, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. So get this. This is like killing two flies with one swat here. Jesus turns and looks at the disciples because he knows that Peter's just speaking for the rest of them. Peter's always the one that says it out loud. They're the ones that are thinking it. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. This is the same thing Jesus said to Satan when he was being tempted in the wilderness. Now here's Peter, just got done claiming Jesus as the Messiah. Revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, Jesus says. In the next paragraph, it seems... Already, he's saying, get behind me, Satan. Like, Peter can go from being used of the Holy Spirit to being used by Satan all within the span of one chapter. I'm going. That's kind of like my story, too. And Jesus, honestly, I mean, he's being harsh here, is he not? But this is a teaching method, the rebuke. If you've never been rebuked by a teacher, then you haven't been trying hard enough. Seriously, it's a pedagogical method that works very, very well. Every now and then I get to use it. It certainly has been used on me, and I never forget them. Never, ever forget when I've been rebuked by a mentor of mine, by a shepherd of mine. Peter carried this with him the rest of his life. In other words, Peter had to learn. It's not about anything except for sacrifice, Peter. So Jesus goes on. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. His cross. A cross, Jesus. A Roman cross, Jesus. You mean that instrument of torture that's reserved for slaves and the worst of the worst? Take up your cross? We've seen those guys, Jesus. Those guys condemned to die with that big cross beam strapped across their back, carrying it down the road. To where they're going to be nailed up on it. Take up your cross and follow. I mean, like Jesus, what? You want, like what, a crucifixion parade? You in the front carrying your cross beam and all of us behind you carrying cross beams. All going to be executed. That's what I'm signing up for? Jesus, honestly, if you want to start a religion, this is not the way to do it. Promise people things. You know, a better life. Money in the bank. You know, healings. Cupboards that are full. Beautiful spouses. Come on. It's like, what is Jesus thinking here? If anybody wants to come after him, He and she must deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow him. He goes on in verse 35, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his or her life for me and for the gospel will save it. Oh, so now Jesus is appealing to my sense, my need, my instinct for survival. Is he not? He's saying if you want to survive... If you want to save your life in the eyes of God, then guess what? You've got to lose it. It's a paradox. It's backwards, like so many things that Jesus teaches. That if I try to hold on to my life, I'm going to lose it, and if I let go of my life, I'm going to find it. So... The positive reinforcement for picking up your cross and following Jesus is the positive reinforcement now. The positive reinforcement is, is if you want to survive the coming judgment, the end of the age, then guess what? This is what you've got to do. Then he comes with a negative reinforcement. What good is it for a man or a woman to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his or her soul? What can someone give in exchange for his or her soul? If anyone is ashamed of me, in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him or her when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. This is called negative reinforcement. You want to escape the judgment to come? Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Lose your life so you can save it. He's been a great teacher here. You know, using all these different teaching methods. The rebuke, right... Positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement. He really wants to get this point across. This is the heart of the gospel right here. We are at the pinnacle. We're at the top of the gospel of Mark. This is what's happening. Jesus is laying out how you get saved, how you get to heaven, how you follow him. This is it. I mean, honestly, the sinner's prayer, not here. That's just the very, very beginning. Praying, asking Jesus into your heart. Revelations 3.20, that kind of thing, right? That's just the beginning. This is it right here. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to follow Jesus, is to sacrifice your life. I do not want Jesus to be ashamed of me when he comes again. You don't want to piss Jesus off here. Honestly. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Now, here's an interesting line, and we need to go over just a bit. What did Jesus mean? Did Jesus mean that some of the people who were standing there with him would not taste death until he came Uh, as the judge who was going to make Jerusalem his throne and rule the entire world. Is that what he meant? Because if so, then they would go on believing that the return of Jesus was coming in the next 20, 30, 40 years. Which is a lot of what the early church thought. Obviously, that didn't happen. Therefore, I don't think that's what it means. So we've got to come up with a different interpretation of what it means that some who are standing there will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. What possibly could he be talking about? Well, we've got the transfiguration coming up in the next chapter. Is that it? Nah, it doesn't really work. It's like just a few days away. It's like, come on, why even talk about it? Like, you're not going to taste death? It's like happening two days from now. I don't think that's it either. Duh. What I think it is, is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that kind of sort of where it all begins? And in truth, most of those standing there did not die before Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose from the dead. All right. We can never say that we're following Jesus under false pretenses after this kind of a diatribe. And honestly, it's always been the characteristic of great leaders to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Winston Churchill, uh, probably one of the greatest leaders in the 20th century of any country in the world, uh, was said when he finally got to power in England right when they were being bombed by the Germans, said something like this, that all he could offer people was blood sweat and tears I don't think that any pastor who offers you pie in the sky by and by you know perfect health full bank accounts new cars beautiful spouses children who are all above average those kinds of things I just don't think they're preaching the whole gospel. Now, Jesus is not asking us to deny ourselves of stuff or things or food here. He is going much deeper than that. Isn't he? Much, much deeper. It's not the denial of something to the self, but the denial of the self itself. He is not asking us to deny. Something to the self, but it's a denial of the self itself. It goes way deeper than I'm going to give up eating sugars and carbohydrates so that I can look better and feel better. All right? It goes way beyond that. As a matter of fact, I would say this, and this is the way I, I think about what Jesus is asking in terms of the cross that we're to bear. Think about this for a second What would you not do for any other reason except for the fact that Jesus asked you to do it? That's what he's talking about. Something that you would never do except for the fact that you're a Christian. That's what we're talking about here. So I thought... What would be some examples of things that I would never, ever do except for the fact that Jesus was in my life and that I was following Jesus? Well, some of you know this. A lot of you know this. Some of you don't. I'll just be really honest. From my past and my life, I would not be married at this particular point in my life it wasn't for Jesus Christ, my wife would say the same thing. We did not like each other, did not want to be around each other. Um, I was just withdrawing emotionally. She would, you know, do the roller coaster thing. I love him. I hate him. I love him. I hate him. I love him. I hate him. Um, Yeah. What the world was telling me is, is that my happiness was important. My happiness actually outweighed my commitment see, Jesus isn't so concerned about my happiness as a married man. He's not so concerned about Mary's happiness as a married woman. What Jesus is concerned about is our goodness. He'd rather have us good than happy, if he had to choose. I think he prefers both. (laughs) But if he's forced to choose, he'll go with goodness every time. And trust me, there is no institution I know of like marriage to help you follow Jesus. One pastor of mine called marriage God's seminary for character. In my case, he was right. Maybe you're in a great marriage. Praise the Lord. But you know what? Life's got a way of hitting you from the blind side, just like the friends that we were praying about early on. It may not always be that way for you. And you may have a choice in the future. We've got a lot of weddings going on at Scum of the Earth, lots of weddings going on. Let me tell you something the day will come at some point when you will look at the person you've married and you will say out loud, I made the biggest mistake in my life when I married you. It's coming. Just plan on it. Some point. I don't know when. It might be 40 years from now. I know people are getting divorced after 40 years of marriage. I'm thinking, what's the point? It's like the, you know... 98-year-old couple went into the courthouse to get a divorce. And the judge goes, you're 98. Why are you coming to get a divorce? Well, well we had to wait for the kids to die first. <laughs> so... <laughs> but we give up control, don't we? To die to oneself in marriage is to give up control. I don't get things my way. And if you think you don't get control when you're married, wait till you have children. Because, you know, you've got to get rid of all your preferences. I mean, parents are being called to die to themselves and to follow Christ all the time. I mean, gentlemen, pray... If, if you ever get married, that your, your wife wants to breastfeed. Because that means you never have to get up in the middle of the night to give the kid a bottle. You can be totally selfish. You can roll over, go back to sleep, because you've got to work the next day, but, you know, because you know, she's kind of the, the milk dispensary. You can't really do that so well. At least the kid's going to get fresh milk. And I always was pushing, Mary, the kid needs fresh milk. Fresh. Right temperature, body temperature. it's great. But my wife, God bless her. I mean, I saw her lay down her life for our children. At one point, she was nursing our oldest. And unbeknownst to us, she was pregnant with our second. And so uh, she was Wiped out all the time. Go to the doctor. What's wrong? You're pregnant. Well, why am I so tired? Well, let me put it this way. You take in the food. The energy first goes to the baby that's forming inside you. That's how your body prioritizes. The second part of that energy goes to the breast milk that you're producing for your toddler. And then, you know what? Anything that's left over, you get. Which is why you're wiped out all the time. Literally laying down her life in a physical sense, not just counting the emotional stuff. But if you don't do this for your kids, then you're a bad parent. Let me just say that right off the bat. This is what parents do for their children. Christian parents do for them. They lay down their lives for their children. And it starts when you bring them home from the hospital or from the birthing room or wherever you you had them. That's when it starts. You start losing sleep right away. You know what? pick up your cross, and do it because of Jesus. If you don't care about the kid, do it because of Jesus, so that he doesn't say, I'm ashamed of you when he comes again in his glory. I mean, it's not just about the kid. You have a master, and you've got to please him. Everybody wants a good job, right? Everybody wants to be fulfilled in their occupation. Well, I'm sure you know different, but you know what? If you got a job that sucks, but it pays the bills, you're able to give to others, provide for your family, maybe your parents even, because they're having a hard time, you know what? Pick up your cross, follow Jesus, do that. Deny yourself. We're not talking about surface things, we're talking about inward things like fulfillment like preferences, like giving up control, like giving up your autonomy, like giving up your time. I tell you what, you want to be a sacrificial lamb? Buy a pickup truck and come to Scum of the Earth. Because your friends will be asking you to borrow that pickup truck and help you move every single time. And I think people at Scum of the Earth move on an average of twice a year. I think there's like a ton of six-month leases out there. And, and, and if you do that over and over and over again, I don't see why you would do it unless you were laying your life down for Jesus. Because these people will drive you crazy. Maybe you give up your freedom for a cause. Maybe you give up your happiness for a commitment. Maybe you give up your comfort for a mission. How many people here have gone on... Short-term mission trips. Okay, several of you. Um, You know that when you go to a third-world country, you're giving up some comfort, are you not? Why are you doing it? For Jesus. Why else would you do that? Take your money, go to Cancun. Take your money, go to Disney World. No, but you're going to go take your money, and you're going to go live in a grass hut with bugs that are the size of your face and... (laughs) You're going to go dig a well for some indigenous tribe in the Amazon. See, that's what Jesus is talking about here. How about giving up popularity for truth? It is not popular to be a Christian these days. We are labeled intolerant. Intolerant because we believe Jesus when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's intolerance, I guess. People become hostile. Um, just on TV, the there a day, Penn and Teller where you know, they got that show on cable. I think it's called Bullshit, right? How many people know that there's a show on cable called Bullshit that's hosted by Penn and Teller, and they they expose people, right, for the BS that it is, right? And um, they will not touch Scientology. They want to go after Scientology. This is in an interview now. They want to go after Scientology, but they will not attack Scientology because of the backlash from Hollywood. Because it's so vicious. But they said in the interview, we attack Christians all the time. evangelical Christians, like we're always coming after them. And you know what? They're the nicest people. They send us letters. They want to interact with us. Well, I see what you're saying. I really understand your point of view. But maybe could we dialogue about this and we could talk about the other side of things? He goes, Christians are so nice. So we pick on them all the time. You're giving up yourself. You're giving up For Jesus. I mean, if you're a greedy person and Jesus wants you to follow him, he doesn't want to deny you money. He wants to deny you your appetite for wealth. It goes much deeper than the money. Even whole churches... learn from this you know churches we love to inscribe the words you know upon this rock i will build my church you know that's what peter said or jesus said to peter just in the verses before when he said you're the messiah upon this rock i'll build my church (laughs) i'm thinking how many churches have inscribed somewhere get behind me satan Maybe more churches that have get behind me Satan inscribed somewhere in their building because we're all prone to having the stuff we want. You know, I mean, forgive me for picking on certain churches, but does your church really need a brand new multi-million dollar recreation center with a bowling alley? Honestly, do you need that? Or should the money go to missionaries? Or maybe some struggling churches downtown that can't afford to bring their buildings up to code? Just saying. Rene Lacoste was the world's top tennis player in the 1920s. He won several major world titles. The U.S. Open, the French Open, Wimbledon. His friends called him Le crocodile." I hope I'm saying that right in French. I think you say the final vowel in a word. Because it described his tenacious play on the court. Once he grabbed a hold, he wasn't letting go. Lacoste accepted the nickname and so he had a tiny alligator emblazoned on his tennis shirts in the 1920s and then afterwards when he retired and had a line of clothing these things became popular all around the world known as alligator shirts back when I was in my 20s they were really popular alligator shirts we all had them The fun thing we used to do is, you know, I would go up to somebody and say, Alligators bite. And then I would pinch them like I'm a nipple twister, you know, (laughs) just grab it really hard. You know, stupid, I know, but more in line with the history of Rene Lacoste than just wearing it with your collar up. You know? Because it meant something. He was tenacious. He wouldn't let go. Nobody realized that back then. Nobody realized why they were wearing the alligator shirts. And so we have a ton of people at the MTV Awards every year who are wearing these implements of torture around their necks, known as crosses. Crosses. And I'm wondering, do you realize what you're wearing? Not only what it cost Jesus, but the fact that He said to you, Pick up your cross and follow me. Look. I am confident that most everybody here has an area of their lives in which it is very difficult to pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Think of a situation where Jesus is asking you to die. Yourself. Think of a relationship where Jesus is asking you to die to yourself. Think of get one. Just think of one. And 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 maybe for you it's a relationship with God. Maybe you've never done the business with God that Jesus is asking initially. My biggest struggle as a young man. Getting to know Christianity was, did I want to give up all of my dreams and lay them at Jesus' feet? Did I want to give up my dreams? I mean, my dreams were that of most young men, I think. I wanted to have as much fun as I could with as many women as I could. I wanted to drink as much beer as I could. I wanted to make as much money so I could spend it on myself as I could. I wanted to have as much respect and fame and popularity as I possibly could get from the world's eyes. And then Jesus puts me with these bunch of weirdo Christians, half of which are not even going to college. How can you get any respect if you don't go to college, was what I was thinking, because that was really utmost in my mind. I wanted the adulation of my peers. Put me in touch with all these Christians. I wanted me to become one of them. And it meant laying down everything that I wanted. I knew it. Because I made fun of those people. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you're right at the very, very beginning step of this whole journey. Saying, I don't even... I mean, do I want to pick up my cross and follow Jesus? Think of a situation. Think of a person. Maybe think of Jesus himself with whom you have an issue where you're being asked to pick up your cross, deny yourself, follow Christ. You got it? Okay, this is what I want you all to do. I want you all to close your eyes, everybody, every single person. Clo- but hang on, Look, keep open them up again because you're not going to know what to do. Here, I changed this just recently. I come from a Greek Orthodox background. Um, we do a thing called the sign of a cross. Let me show how it works. Here's your right hand, and um, you will take the f- your thumb and your first two fingers and put them together like this, and take your other two fingers and put them in the palm of your hand. That's how you hold your hand if you're doing a Greek Orthodox cross. The the three fingers together mean the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The two fingers down on your palm uh, signify Jesus being totally God and totally man at the same time. And, of course, the palm reminds you of Jesus' crucifixion, right? So that's how you hold your hand. If you, you want to do this with me, this is, I'm going to ask you to, to do the sign of the cross. Don't do it now. But what you do is... Um, You touch your forehead, you touch your heart, you touch your right shoulder, and then your left shoulder. So, top, bottom, right, left is a sign of the cross. You cross yourself. You're bringing the cross onto yourself. In some symbolic way, you're picking up your cross and saying, yes, I will follow you, Jesus. I will sacrifice myself just voluntarily like you did. I will follow you. I will be yours. All right, so now, close your eyes. Think of that person, think of that situation. Think of the Lord Himself. And if you are willing to take up your cross and follow Jesus in that sacrifice, then I want you to go ahead and do the sign of the cross, every eye closed. If you're willing to do that, if you're willing to follow Jesus, to pick up your cross and follow him, good. I see people all around crossing themselves, head, heart, right shoulder, left shoulder, mind, soul, strength, all in that direction of following Jesus with all my mind, with all my heart, with all my strength. I will pick up my cross and I will follow you.